In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Colin Sutton, a former police detective, is celebrated for his instrumental role in the capture of two of the UK's most notorious criminals. Levi Belfield, a serial killer, and Delroy Grant, a serial rapist, were both caught thanks to his exceptional efforts. The BAFTA-nominated ITV drama Manhunt was inspired by the successful investigations led by Colin. With over three decades of experience and a record of solving over 30 murder cases, Colin is a seasoned detective with a remarkable track record. His involvement in these two high-profile cases brought him widespread recognition. In Manhunt, DCI Sutton is portrayed by Martin Clunes as the lead investigator who brought both criminals to justice. Colin's book, Manhunt, provides a comprehensive insight into his methods and strategies. I had the pleasure of meeting Colin earlier this year at CrimeCon, where we discussed his exceptional work as a detective in front of a live audience. We also talked about his challenges and fame that came with his exceptional career, as well as the second chance he gave to the victims of crimes he helped solve. Thank you very much. Chris. Now, we've, we've kind of um, framed this as the Second Chance Podcast. That's my podcast, Second Chance Podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, we've got a YouTube channel, we've got a, an audio version. And it's really me talking to people about their second chances in life and what that means to people. Who gives people a second chance? Do people deserve a second chance in life, whether you are a victim, a perpetrator, etc., etc.? So if you haven't listened to it, have a listen. I'm very fortunate to meet Colin here. 
and, and I should say at the very outset, Colin, so many people have come up to me and, and sort of said, oh, you're doing an interview with Colin. I'm such a big fan. I want to squeeze his cheeks. I want to... <laughs> I, 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 I want to marry him, you, you, you know, so um, look, there's hands up over there off, offering themselves. Colin, how do you respond to that immediately? Uh, three wives have been enough in my experience. Um, yeah, uh, no, it, it's, listen, it, it's actually a second chance in some ways, but it's a nice second chance for me because I had a career and did what I did. And I was delivering flowers for £8 an hour when I finished just to occupy myself. And all this suddenly happened and I just roll with it and do what I can with it. And you say roll with it, but you are a phenomenal individual. I mean, let's go. I like to start my podcast with all of my guests by asking them who, who they are as opposed to what's been written about them, what people have read about that individual, the headlines in particular, the cases that you've been yeah. involved in, which we will get into, which most of you in this room know about, Levi Belfield, the Night Stalker, and I'm sure they want to hear a little bit about that if you haven't before. Yeah. But before we go there, who, who is Colin Sutton? Because, I mean, your career as a police officer goes way back, and I read this on Wikipedia this morning, 1957. <laughs> no, this, this, I'm not that old, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> But so Wikipedia, don't believe Wikipedia, right, this is, this, is, this is really quite hilarious. There's a guy called Colin Bertie, in inverted commas, his nickname Sutton, who was, joined the police in 1957, was in Leicestershire, and then came to the Met as an assistant commissioner or something. And he died in 1994. And, the num and for some reason, his, his Wikipedia entry has got a picture of me. <laughs> and we're kind of... We've kind of been merged into one. And the production company I do all the Real Hunter stuff for, they sort of saying, you need a Wikipedia entry, we're going to sort it. And Wikipedia won't have it. Nope, nope, we're not correcting it, you can't correct it. They correct it, it gets corrected or decorrected back. And forever, I am joined the police three years, four years before I was born. <laughs> And I died 29 years ago, and here I am. Well, there you go. That's why, that's why it's really important, right, that we start at, yeah. at, at where I want to start at, yeah. which is when did you become a police officer and why did you become a police officer? Uh, I, I became a police officer in 1981, at the beginning of 1981. My dad was a cop. My mum was a lawyer. My grandfather's one drove a bus and one was in the army. My great-grandfather was a police officer in the Met. In fact, my great-grandfather... My father and I all started at the same police station, which was Tottenham in North London. My great-grandfather was invalided out in 1921, having been run over by a horse-drawn tram on point duty outside the police station. And he got a pension of £76 a year. I looked all this up in the Met History Sector. And of course now my son is a sergeant in South West London, so there's four out of five uh, generations. I always wanted to do it. Mum and Dad didn't want me to do it, didn't want to be a policeman, they wanted me to be a lawyer. For various reasons, I managed to persuade them otherwise and, uh, and joined the police. I was 20, 1981, and went to Tottenham and didn't know what I wanted to be other than a street policeman. I didn't want to be a detective, did not want to be. My dad had tried to be a detective and he was somewhere he shouldn't have been or wasn't somewhere he should have been and got busted and he ended up as traffic cop for most of his service and they hate the CID detectives. Um, Mostly, and uh, yes, oh, they're all bent, they're all bent. Yeah, don't wanna, you don't want to get involved with them. And I, I, I wasn't, I just wanted to be a good street cop. And Tottenham was a tough place. I was a community officer on the board of Farm Estate before the riot, and that was a tough gig, you know, that was mm. difficult, difficult mm. policing in those days. And 
One of the pieces of advice my dad gave me, which I passed on to my son, was if they ever offer you a training opportunity or a course, take it. Yeah, don't ever turn anything down. And they, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done all right at school and so forth, and, and, and I was quite unusual in having A-levels joining the police in those days. And uh, I did the probations exam after I had about, you know, 20, 20 months service and passed it quite well. And the superintendent said, do you want to take the sergeant's exam in January? And I hadn't thought of it, and, but I said, well, yeah, if, you, if you'll let me, sir. And I had two years and three days service. I passed the exam. I got onto a promotion course thing, which kept me in uniform. And I'd wanted then, because something had happened where I, I'd, I'd come across a double murder off duty and tried to rescue, it was a fire, an arson, and tried to rescue the, the, um, the people there and failed and they died. But I'd been on the murder squad for a few days and I'd seen this guy sitting with a sea of people in front of him, much like this, and saying, okay, what do you do today? What does it mean? What do we do next? What have you done today? What do you... and, and that kind of intellectual process really appealed to me. I thought, God, I want that job. That's what I want to do. That's, that's a great job. But I thought, I can't do it. I'm on this career path. So I went to Brams Hill to the police college for a year. I was a uniform sergeant at Paddington for a year. Then got promoted to inspector at Leighton in East London. I was 25 years old. I had four years and 10 months police service. I knew nothing. How I coped, God only knows. And what I learned then was actually, if you don't know the answer, you ask. You don't pretend you know the answer because you just come and stuck that way. And then because I'd gone to university and given up to join the police, they'd sent me back and said, do you want to go and do a law degree now? I said, yeah, okay. So I did a law degree at UCL, three years full-time on full inspector's pay, which was a good gig, really, in fairness. Uh, eight, eight hours a week lectures, three of tutorials, football, cricket. Yeah, it was good. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I got my handicap down to, I think, this lowest ever then, which was 12. That's golf, if yeah. you don't know. Uh, and uh, that was great. And then I was never going to be a detective. And I was a uniform inspector at Holloway in North London for a long time, for about four years, and loved it. It was really tough work and a really great best team of people I think I ever worked with um, doing the response policing in Holloway. And uh, they had a moratorium on promotions in the Met for four years and um, they said to people like me who'd been on this promotion scheme well we can't promote you so do you fancy doing something different I said can I be a detective they said, yeah all right <laughs> and that was it that's how I became a detective I went straight across the DI and kind of took to it and found my niche it's something I said to my son was that you know you will find your niche in the police and it may take you two years or 20 years but once you find it hold on to it because it means a lot and if you're going to work every day and love what you're doing you've got a you know you're luckier than most people do, do you know what i find interesting when you said it, it was just a job but what you're dealing with is human beings you're, and, and some of the most frightening some of yeah. the most uh, um, traumatized human beings how do you separate being a police officer who's got to investigate you know murders yeah. and we know that you've investigated some of the most high profile murders but how do you separate because someone said to me just a moment ago one thing about colin he has such compassion empathy sympathy even today and as a police officer who's been involved in these deep dark crimes you still come out and don't have that kind of thing that some police officers have so how do you separate the job from dealing with people who are going through the most traumatic experience yeah. in their lives, whether it's victims or perpetrators, that you are accusing of a crime. Can, can I, I'll say it the first time, I'm looking around, are there, are there any police officers or ex-police officers in the room? No? Yes? No? <laughs> I don't really like policemen very much. That's the truth. 
Um, police women over the years I've got on very well with, and, and they have different views. No, come on. No, it, it, it's, it's um, they, they have a softer attitude. They don't have such a sort of macho attitude, and that's not really... I beg to differ. That's, <laughs> that's not really me. Well, okay, I'll generalise you, but yeah. Uh, um, I think policing, and particularly even even more so detection, detective work, is about people. It's about understanding people. It's about understanding why people did things, what they did, what would they have done. You know, you're testing theories and you're trying to look at it. And and if you unless you understand how people operate and how people think and what they how they react, then that you know, unless you can do that, you've not really got a chance of second guessing what they're doing or looking at what they're doing. So I think there's that to it. Liam said something in your session earlier on that was really, really interesting, where he said, you've got two, there's some people, you ask, why did you become a policeman? You become a policeman to lock up the bad guys, or did you come become a policeman, policewoman, to help the community, help people, and to, to do that side of it? And I'm very much that side, yeah. And, and locking up, locking up, you know, locking up people like Levi Belfield or Delroy Grant, does that help the community? Well, yeah because you know, in both cases there are literally dozens and dozens of potential victims who would otherwise have been victimised, who can't be and weren't because these people were in prison. So you know, you've done your job in that way. So for me it's more that aspect of protection than it is the, the aspect of sort of punitive action against somebody who's transgressed. And that's why, yeah, perhaps unusually, I think, for, for, for police officers generally, and I don't know, my generation, firmly, firmly, firmly against the death penalty. Because I don't, I don't think that's what a civilised society should do to people. But I'm in a minority in the police service, I think certainly at the lower ranks in that, and possibly in population as a whole. But that's, and I'd have found it difficult doing the job, knowing that that was going to be the outcome. Even when you're dealing with people like Levi yeah. Belfield or yeah. Delroy Grant, yeah? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've... I play these, I'm a bit of a Muhammad Ali, um, I do this sort of future history where I sort of play things through in my head as to how things are going to go. And one of those that I've prepared for is that hopefully I, I survive longer than Levi Belfield does. And if he dies in prison, I'm going to get a phone call from journalists saying, what's your comment? And I'd never gloat, I'd never say I'm glad he's dead. I'll say I think few will mourn him, but I, I, don't, I don't wish the death of another person on anybody because that's just not who I am. Chris, Chris described you uh, uh, as a legend. <laughs> what, what, what made that legacy? We know your involvement in the Belfield case, we know your involvement in the Grant case, but, but, but you've been involved in numerous investigations, yeah. uh, uh, cases where people have been locked up who didn't get those sorts of headlines. What makes you the legend you are, people describe? I was just lucky, really. Just, you know, and, and I, I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I stepped up when things happened, but somebody else might have stepped up or might not have done. But is it because you had a certain skill set that other detectives didn't have? I don't think in terms of being a detective. I think in terms of getting the best out of the people that I worked with. I think that's the most important thing. Knowing who was the right person to do that job. Understanding, again, understanding how people think, how people operate, how does the team operate. You know, I've said it before to other people, sort of off the record, but there was one officer on my murder team Every single time this officer, and I'm being deliberately sort of gender neutral, every time this officer spoke to a member of the public, I'd get a complaint, either by a letter, an email or a phone call, because they didn't have those skills. But you put them down in front of CCTV, 
and they did a blinding job. And so I sat down with him and said, look, well, I said it gave you away there, him. I sat down with him <laughs> and said, said, look, you know, I'm fed up with answering all these complaints about how you talk to people. You're not good at it, but you're brilliant at CCTV. Now, two things. You can either be CCTV for virtually everything we ever do and stay here, or you can go back to a borough. Because you know, I don't want you on my team if you're going to be like that. He said, well, no, I want to stay. I'll do that. And he did a great job. So he was a square pig put into the square hole. And it's kind of understanding that. And, 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 and being, they knew where they were with me. They knew that if I said something, it happened. It was true. It was going to happen. That's so important. You can't work for somebody who you can't trust. So I think it's all those things that, that I did. It wasn't so much my great skill as a detective. I like to think I'm quite good at thinking things through. But it's much more important to understand that you're a leader of a team. And I don't solve things on my own. They solve it for me. I set the strategy. I try and support them and get the best out of them. That's what I think leadership's about. It's getting the best out of the people you lead. I just wanted to let you know that the Second Chance podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow this podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe, follow and like buttons wherever you listen to the Second Chance podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that would be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. I've spent a lot of my career, as people here will know, working on the other side, you know, as a former prisoner myself, wrongfully imprisoned, going into prisons for my Netflix series, interviewing serial killers and various other people that people like you lock away. Mm. And, And I ask that big question, do they deserve a second chance? Do they deserve to be executed or do they deserve an opportunity of of having a second chance in life being released from prison what do you think from your side you know when you look at people like Belfield and you look at people like the Night Stalker are these individuals that after 20 25 years 30 years in prison do they deserve an opportunity to live a second life I think if you are an academic and looking at it in a kind of sterile atmosphere, a sterile sort of environment of, of academia, then logic and decency says yes. I think in the real world, and I don't like that phrase much, but in, in the context of a community, there are certain people that to do that and give them that second chance would be such an affront to the community that perhaps they shouldn't have it. But is that because the individual hasn't been, and I hesitate to use the word rehabilitated, because you know, 20, 30 years in prison, people do change. Not everybody, and mm. I don't know if Belfield and the Night Stalker are, are those kinds of individuals, or many no. of the other people that you... But, but I mean, should we be appeasing a community rather than what justice should look like and, and these second chances? It's this balance, isn't it, between the rights and needs of an individual and the rights and needs of the wider community. And, and, and yeah... Do I think people, anyone can be rehabilitated? Yes, in theory, they can. Does it happen very often? I'm not sure, but you know, John McVicker and you know, the sort of people who have gone on to have stellar careers, academic careers or, or, or whatever, having been quite serious and heavy criminals in the past. But they're quite, you know, I can't think of another one off the top of my head. He's the first one that comes to mind. But so 
you know, can someone like Levi Burford ever be, ever be rehabilitated? Well, the evidence I think we see so far is that even from behind bars, he is still managing to pull strings, to ring bells, to cause mayhem for the victims' families that he's already taken someone from. Um, and while he's still doing that, then I don't think we can say he's rehabilitated. And I don't think the community as a whole would accept him being put back amongst them. I, I, during the years that I was in prison, I became very good, close friends with Reggie Cray, the, right. one, of, one of the Cray twins. He'd been in prison for, for 35 years, you know, became a, a, a close friend of mine, prison close friend, that, that is. In the 35 years that he'd been in prison before he died um, as a prisoner, although he died in the hospital outside, there, there was an argument about whether he should or shouldn't be re released. They're, they're having the same argument about Charles Bronson at, at, at the moment. Should people be released from prison who have been rehabilitated? Because I, I'm just trying to see it from your perspective. When you're sitting across that individual in an interview room and then 15, 20, 30 years down the line, they're no longer a threat to the community. And I don't believe Reggie Craig was. He had this notoriety around yeah. him and this mythical idea that he was still what he was. But believe me, he was not. He was a different old man at 35 years years old who couldn't string together a proper sentence that's what prison had done to him it, it, it fragmented his mind and he was unable to 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 articulate himself very well do you believe they should yeah i i think my my personal sense is that we shouldn't be keeping people who whose faculties have deteriorated to that condition and who don't pose danger we shouldn't be keeping them in prison but you know you then go back to the fact that, yeah, there are victims and victims' families who that means a lot too. I, I, I talked to a lady in the series we are just making, The Real Manhunter, who is, has lost her daughter, murdered, uh, somebody's been convicted of it, and um, I'm going to tell you the case because it's um, Daniel Jones, if you know the case, yeah? Talking to Linda, her mother, who's, who's fantastic and talks any opportunity because she says, I do this because every single time I can get a platform, it keeps my daughter's memory in the, in the public eye. Do you know that the guy, I forget his name now, I ought to know it, but I haven't got an auto cue. No, I don't use an auto cue. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but he, 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 um, he was her uncle. He was like married to her mother's sister or father's sister. And he was convicted. He's in prison, but he served the time that the judge allotted him before he could apply for parole. So annually, he applies for parole. Now, his... Not he's, he hasn't told the location of the body. So sort of Helen's law comes into play, if you like, with it, yeah? But think of it from this point, from the mother's point of view. Every year in about March, she gets a phone call from the parole board saying, he's up for parole soon. We'll, we'll be hearing it in a week, next week or two, and then we'll be in touch. And it can be three, four, five, or six weeks before she gets the phone call saying, no, he didn't get it. And she says to me, she, you know, when I sit and interview her, she says, I'm on pins... We're all on pins for that six weeks while we're waiting. And the thing to me is that I know for all the many faults that the police service in this country have, and I'm not blind to them, I'm really not, I promise you. One thing that we've managed to do well since I started in 1981 to now is family liaison and family liaison officers, and we do a really good job of it. The CPS and the parole board are light years behind because if that... You know, if that woman doesn't deserve some support and better treatment than having to sit and wait for six weeks 
to know whether her daughter's killer is going to be released from prison. Yeah, we, we, we're better than that. We ought to be better than that. I think there's always two sides. I mean, that, that parole show that was on the BBC recently gives yes. another insight into how they, they operate. You, you've had a very distinguished career. Um, in that time, have you been involved in any cases that have been miscarriages of justice? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I believe I have. Or I believed I have, um, and and it's uh, you know obviously I don't people I I'm a, sort of a late substitute for this. Other there was somebody else coming in, but I said no, I'll, I'll do it. I'll t-, yeah, I talk about anything, but uh, um, yeah. So I thought about this, and 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 I think it's it's not a plug because I've had enough twenty eight pences for my books. But um, in in my second book, the, the, there's I think I tell the story uh, when we were doing disclosure for the Night Stalker case. Uh, the officer that was doing it, he was very sharp and very on the ball. She came to me and she said, there's a case here that from 1987, so that's like nine years before the Night Stalker case started. No, five years before we thought they started. And it looks like one of our cases, an 88-year-old woman who's got uh, somebody broken into a house and raped her. Oh, okay. So I try and get the file, and when I get the file, it's not there. They say it's out with the cold case sexual offences team at Sutton or something. So I phoned them up. And I said, oh, don't you worry about that, Governor. We've got someone for that. I think that's exactly why I'm worrying about Because obviously part of our case against Daryl Grant is sort of system and they're all the same. <laughs> and I said, no, that's exactly what I was worried about. He said, oh, there's DNA. So I said, well, who is it? And he says, oh, and he gives me the name and it's, ob- it's an obviously Irish name. And I said, right, okay. I said, but this woman said she was raped by a black man. He said, yeah, yeah, but there's DNA. Okay, but, and I looked at the statements eventually, and, and this guy, she's saying, this lady who's now dead and can't tell the story, is saying that it was a black man with, 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 with um, short Afro hair and with a South London stroke Jamaican accent, raped me. And there was another man in the room about, possibly, who was also black. And they've got a six foot three ginger haired Irishman. <laughs> whose DNA is on her window frame. Matches the description yeah. perfectly. Right? So, I, so, so I'm thinking, well, this is a bit odd. Anyway, I thought no more of it, because I think, well, that's, okay, it's not, it's not, it doesn't apply, to, you know, it's not, it's not going to trouble our case, because we've got DNA and forensics anyway. Um, and then the next I hear, I get a phone call from media branch, who say, would you like to make a comment about this John Joseph McLean getting 14 years for rape? And I said, no, I really don't want to make any comment about it at all, because... I'm shocked by it, and, and I'm, I'm really worried by it. So I went to a senior officer, more senior than me then, and explained the situation. I said, I, I, you know, this? I don't know how this man's been convicted, but we looked, subsequently I've looked at the, all the papers after I retired, because I spoke to his solicitors, and, and uh, the judge essentially had directed the jury to say, well, she was probably mistaken. And that was it. And he got 14 years. And I'm really concerned about it. So I, so I go to this person. I said, look, you know, this is the circumstance. These are the circumstances. I'm really concerned about this. I think we ought to get somebody to take a look at it. And he said, Colin, we're the police. We put people in prison. We don't let them out. Hmm. And then I went to the CPS. And I said, I'm really worried about this. And they just said, oh, properly convicted before a judge. We're not, we're not bothered about it. End of the story. End of story. And so once I retired and I started working doing a lot of work for IT, ITV News um, first of all and, and uh, they were looking at doing some documentaries and I said about this case, I think we should have a look at it and, and uh, 
that's how I got in touch with his solicitors and they came in and they gave me copies of the papers and I read through it. What I actually now realise is that this guy, he, I mean, his, his, his defence, if you like, was, yes, I did have sex with this lady because I like old ladies, I'm a bit weird like that. And I, I fixed her window and that's how I left the DNA and the fingerprints in the bedroom. And asked her neighbour, because I was going out with her as well at the same time, and she said, she's only 69, she was a, a spring chicken, that one. Um, <laughs> And, and she said, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he came, we, he met, we met him in the tea rooms and he had a black man with him. And, and then I realised this guy was actually a check fraud, most check fraud merchant, really. He, he'd been last arrested in the late 90s in Leicester for check fraud, as had Delroy Grant. And suddenly the light bulb comes on and you think, hang on, I think what's happened here is probably Delroy Grant and him were both hey, involved right. together. Okay. So maybe it wasn't a miscarriage after all. But the fact that this is a really cynical thing about the media is that this guy had a previous conviction for indecently assaulting somebody. And as soon as they found that out, listen, no, we don't, no, no audience sympathy. Even if he's doing 14 years wrongly, he's obviously a wrong one, isn't he? We'd, no, and they wouldn't make the programme, wouldn't do the film because he had that previous conviction. You've been involved in... There's lots of people here will be aware yeah. Manhunt and you know, a lot of yeah. you know, Clooney, is it, or someone? Clooney, yeah. Clooney, who, who no. play, play, I'm not, played you. I'm not familiar. I'm I haven't artist. seen it myself. But I, 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 and we don't have much time to talk about that. Any regrets? You know, a distinguished career as a police officer who's been involved in numerous cases, locking yeah. people up, doing the right thing with, with, in the right way. Any regrets? Yes. And a regret that only hit me in the last six months and that was the, the, there's, a, there's a case that I wanted to finish and sure you don't want to save this for a book yeah it's, it's half written um, <laughs> as my God, I bumped into my publishing editor today out on the bookstall out there I thought oh, I've got to keep away from him <laughs> I, no he's over there he, 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 I, I, I owe him a book um, okay, um, but yeah uh, um, actually, the last 10 months of my service, when I was at Lewisham and we were getting the Night Stalker ready for call, I was bored stiff. I was driving 49 miles around the M25, going in uh, 7 hours, 58 minutes, and then driving home again because I had nothing to do. What I should have done was got the papers back for these old cases, and we could have done it then. And as it was, it had to wait until 2020, so in 10 years, when I got the funding from a TV company to make a film about it. We went and did the investigation last year, filmed it as we did it, found some new evidence, gave it all back to the Met, and it's now a live inquiry again. But I could have done that 10 years before. And if I had have done, the victim's mother, who lived to 94 and only died three years ago, would have still been alive for it. Another victim's father would still be alive. And I don't know what, I think I was so pissed off because I had nothing to do that I kind of withdrew. And if I'd have had, yeah, if I had my time again, I'd say, give us those papers, I'd say a couple of good people, and we could have gone and done it. I, I, I've got about three minutes left because I've had that hand wave. Um, and before I wrap up, because I know there are some super fans of Colin in this room, I want to give you the opportunity to ask just two questions. So anybody who wants to ask Colin a question about something they're interested in, raise your hand. Lady over there. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you feel about that? Because about Liam? No, about the whole... The case. Um, disclosure, every case has a disclosure officer. But very often, for volume crime, it's the investigating officer. 
and it's done to a greater or less degree. I said to, um, to Jeanette, who came and spoke to you afterwards, who was sitting next to me, that I had a, a very skewed view about disclosure because when the CPIA provisions came in, I was involved in major crime. And so I've got a great photograph of, of, of the case file, the court file for Belfield. It's on a pallet. It really is. There were 65,000 documents. And we had to do disclosure on that, and we did it properly. We had the whole team. And I signed it off, and I read every single one of them. And some of those documents were 30 pages long. Because you just got into the habit that that's how you investigate it, and that's what you had to do. The, the thing that scared me, I said this to Liam after, the thing that scared me about it was what if that lady had disposed of her phone 30 seconds before she went into the police station? Where's, where's Liam there? He's straight behind the eight ball again. You know, he's, he's yeah. yeah. And, and that worries me. That worries me no end. It, and, and in some ways that worries me even more than the fact that there was, and I think it's incompetence rather than, you know, conspiracy or cock up. I always go for cock up with the police because I had 30 years of it and I know what they're like. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, but it scares me more the fact that we are now generating more evidence with these things in our pockets than anybody can sensibly cope with. That's the, that's, the, that's the truth of it. And so the provisions that we've got and the facilities we've got and the system and processes we've got aren't suited to terabyte upon terabyte of data coming out of people's pockets. It's frightening, isn't it? But look, we don't have much more time as the seconds tick down. So I just want to say thank you to everybody coming, listening to Colin and thank me you. have this conversation. Thank you, Colin, for sharing. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Quick reminder that you can find our video interviews on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. Please subscribe and follow us to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, your family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in.